of intellectual self-discovery. You're listening to another episode of the In the Driveway podcast. Intellectual yet stimulating. All the topics you're not supposed to talk about at the dinner table. Politics, economics, religion. You know happen under the stars with your bros. So crack open a cold one. Blaze up if you've got one. And join your hosts, Chad and Dustin, in the driveway. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to In the Driveway. I'm uh, Dustin. I'm here with my buddy, Chad. What's up, everybody? And we've uh, got a special guest, Charles Hayton, back on the night. He was on a couple of weeks ago. We talked about some MMT stuff. Uh, He's here tonight to talk about the Federal Jobs Guarantee. And uh, Charles, how's it going, man? Uh, pretty good. Thank you, Dustin. Um, yeah, uh, we kind of breezed past it with Chad the first time. And, um, you know, definitely want to go back and talk about it with him. Um, there's be some things that uh, we, we'd be remiss if we didn't, right? So, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, every time I hear about the, the jobs guarantee idea, what comes to my mind is like, uh, the draft or military type thing, which is digging holes, right? Yeah. Digging holes, refilling them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, the military has always been kind of a jobs guarantee in a way. Problem is the military doesn't provide any output other than whatever poppy fields or oil fields it can secure. Right. So that causes inflation when you give a whole bunch of people military jobs. There's, there's age limits, you know, physical tests. You, know, you, you gotta be up to a certain standard to uh, get in the military. Right. Um, yeah, so I'm guessing the idea is that with, with the MMT style jobs guarantee, we would have some sort of job with a decent wage that the government guarantees and this would not result in inflation because they would be producing something of real value and, and, and that would be in general, a good thing. um, I guess my concern there is going to be that um, nobody really talks about what exactly these jobs are going to be. There's just a sort of assumption that, well, if we have a jobs guarantee, that will be good. And, presumably these are going to be jobs that create that produce things that people want and that will be good my critique is going to be yeah but what are they going to produce and are we sure that this is going to work well my my first thing is green new deal um as we talked about last time in our episode with adam kokesh we talked about the uh the climate change situation and how we go forward from there and what we do. And some of those jobs I think could be uh, filling that gap in those not so profitable transitions that need to really be done. So so, um, where I would start is kind of go back to the beginning with the money story, right? You know, the, the unemployed are, um, you know, there because, you know, the government is taxed and, um, you know, you, you know, you, if we, if we start with, um, the simple like model, right? Like 
you, you know, everybody in the room gets a job, right? We, we, uh, we don't have this problem, <laughs> right? <laughs> if the government like withholds cards, you know, you can only get one and, uh, and we, and we need, you have to pay one, right? So like only, you can only get one job. You, you can only get one card. You know, we don't have this problem. So if you, if you look though, you, you know, looking at it from the money story perspective, right? There's this initial group of people that get the money from the government by working for the government, right? And then there's this other group of people that still have to pay the tax, but they don't have a job because the government hasn't given them one, right? All the, the, the first group of people have taken all the jobs, whatever. And so now the second group has to go to the first group. And this is where capitalism begins because now this first group is, is can, you know, they can sell the dollar for real stuff. And, um, and you know, we government has sort of created this sort of condition by introducing the currency and the tax. So it's forced this on the economy. You know, before, you know, before government, before you have courts that establish property rights and you need public, you know, you have to have a public sector to be able to administer courts and enforce their decisions. Um, you don't have a concept of employment or unemployment. You know, there's, so, so it's really like a monetary phenomenon uh, corresponding with how governments provision themselves. That's um, true. And that's kind of like, kind of like the uh, people needing to get the unit of account determines like whatever they have to do to get that unit of account is what a job is considered. Right. So, yeah, like, I mean, sort of, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, the term job is kind of, you know, we all have jobs, right? We're dads, we're parents, we, you know, we're um, uncles, you know, uh, we, we have those family roles that we play and some of us, you know, do things on the side, you know, or we, you know, might work for a, a charity or something and carry a title with it and we have a job, you know, but uh, when it comes to unemployment, we're talking about monetary unemployment and and, uh, I, you know, I think I agree with what you're saying. Um, so, so, you know, we're left, you know, with an economy where there's people looking for work and, and they're not hired. And, you know, the conventional wisdom is, or conventional economics, you know, there's either something wrong with the worker or they really don't want to work. And, you know, so if you really wanted a job, you would find one. And, you know, people say it all the time, oh, go work at McDonald's, go work at, Walmart. Well, actually, they don't hire everyone. I mean, it sounds strange, but yeah, they 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 don't hire everyone. Um, they make decisions uh, on hiring. Um, you know, I don't know what all their qualifications are, but um, you know, I know because I've known people that have filled out applications for McDonald's for Walmart, and then there's not they're not hiring all the time, and they don't hire everyone. So, like, you know, there, there's not a place in the economy um uh for everyone and and you know we we could operate things in a way like i don't know we could just do away with all concern about inflation right and just you know demand could go sky high and and you know everyone needs to be working and prices are accelerating so everybody you know welfare benefits you know don't cut it and it you know pushes everyone into the workforce and 
you know, we, we could operate that way, but there's reasons we don't, right? Like there's, um, yeah, it's important that everyone's working, but at the same time, like, you know, we want price stability, we want a normal functioning economy. And um, you know, so it's, it's going to be very rare where like the private sector hits, you know, full employment, um, be very rare indeed. And um, one of the distinctions that you can kind of make between like post-Keynesian economics and, and MMT is it's about the money story. And, uh, you know, the PKers, is, they may say like the, just capitalism, the, the, the private sector is just fundamentally unstable. And um, it's, it's the private sector that sort of unemploys everyone. And I guess, it, I don't know, I guess they just missed the part in the beginning with the money story where, you know, the government is creating this unemployment. Um, so, so anyway, so, yeah, yeah, I, I, so going back to the money story, I I do have some, some problems with it. Um, I think, I mean, it seems like there's a, there, there's a problem of like, is the government solving a problem? Like people need work and they're going to give the people work or is the government producing that problem? Because, essentially those those people in the room in the money story don't really need a job until the government imposes that tax and then now they need a job in order to pay that tax true and it's it's a little bit of both i mean they needed a job in order to pay that tax but they also needed a job in order to meet the demands of survival like yeah everything's priced in dollars so, 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 yeah, like, you know, um, we don't work for dollars because we have to pay a tax, right? Most of us, you know, um, you know, like I said, though, that, uh, last time is, you know, if we were to try to operate like, you know, me and, you know, we want to only contract in uh, Bitcoin and, and or maybe euros or a foreign currency, the government will just come in and, and it's imputed income. And, you know, basically the assumption will be that whatever income we earn will convert a portion that we need to, to dollars to, to then pay our tax in dollars, right? So, um, uh, but does that, does that answer Chad's question? Like, was, was he saying, like, you know, point number one was like, as Dustin answered it, you were saying that, like, it's it's about, uh, you know, the needs of survival. Does that answer Chad's question? I well, I mean, well, he was, I, he was, he was, he was asking about what kind of jobs actually would a job guarantee oh, oh, okay. kind of, so, I, so what would the purpose of them be? And well, I, whatever, like what he's talking about, the government looks out and we have this problem of unemployment. All right. Unemployment uh, in April of last year was around 15%. Now it's back down to, around four to five percent but that's not the full story that's just the amount of people who are unemployed and don't and actively uh, don't apply for or and apply for unemployment right so like what i really truly considered to be full full employment is when everybody has a job within the private sector even if the job guarantee were a thing I wouldn't consider us to be fully employed until everybody who's looking for a job has a job in the private sector. What I consider the jobs guaranteed to be and what Mosler likes to refer to it 
as a transitional job. It's really an intended job for people to get while they're looking for work back in the private sector at a better paying private sector job. Yeah, I, well. And instead of having this. So it's part of a. Buffer of unemployed people. We give these, we have this buffer of employed people who are still building skills and not going stagnant and forgetting everything about how to do their jobs. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so, so the job guarantee though is part, it's not the entire thing of a full employment scheme. You, you know, um, the way to start to get to full employment is to say, hey, you know, federal government, are, are you the right size? Do you have all the people that you need to have? If not, hire them permanently. Normal jobs. They're government jobs, but they're normal employment, right? At the normal rates. And right. Then- as, long, as long as you can look out at the world and say, look, we've got this many people unemployed who want a job but can't find one we've got this thing that's happening that needs to be taken care of say we're starting to notice flooding on the coast or whatever and need to start employing people to build levees that's not a profitable thing to do but it needs to be done nonetheless yeah yeah but but there's reasons why i'm gonna suggest kind of what um you know warren's um recent type of uh outlook and his what he would do is like nonprofits would operate the job guarantee would not be done by um you know his original plans he would have just told the um existing federal agencies that to you know hire the unemployed and then um and then allowed nonprofits uh to do the same under a job guarantee type scheme right they're all paid 15 an hour benefits um but you know now he, he favors just using nonprofits, and the reason is, and in, in going back, you know the uh, what's his name, um, Davidson, um, Professor Davidson. He's he's the um, he's out of the uh, University of Tennessee. He's like the founder of like Journal of Heterodox Economics or something, and um, he he was pretty much in favor of these job guarantee workers taking the place of the normal government having like, basically you would fire all the government workers and then they rehire them under a job guarantee. And this has a potential to be, um, you know, politically uh, toxic, <laughs> you know, as, as difficult as it may be to get a job guarantee, if you add this element to it, like, you know, um, it makes it even worse. And, um, you know, other MMTers like, um, Bill Mitchell proposed, like, along with the job guarantee, oh, we can get rid of um, unemployment benefits. Um, you know, and he's in Australia, and, you know, there might be reasons that might be applicable to Australia, but U.S., you know, mostly U.S. MMTers, they would just leave everything else the same. You know, we would get rid of any sort of welfare um, eligibility um, if we had a job guarantee because we, we want a smoother, smooth transition. And, uh, you know, there might be reasons to maintain unemployment and still might be reasons some of this welfare uh, stuff, you know, it may not necessarily be tied to like uh, employment. So like uh, there's you know, maybe no reason to cut it at all, even if you had a job guarantee under this logic. So like, um, you know, and you ask like what they're going to do and, and look, anything, 
is better than what they're doing now, which is nothing. And, you know, all I got to do is outrun the bear. I don't have to – all I have to do is outrun you. I don't have to outrun the bear. You know, so anything that that we get these these workers doing, you know, is better than doing nothing for the most part. I don't think that's true because if you think about, like, uh, you know, China occasionally will build an entire city that will just be a ghost town after they're done building it. Nobody lives there. And to me, that's just a, a complete waste of resources that could have been yeah, used. Yeah, that might waste different... resources. Yeah, but I mean, if you know, what's waste when you're still under uh, under capacity? There might be environmental effects, right? So it, it, you really want to pay attention to and worry about. And I'm not, you know, I'm not saying there's not no cost, but well, I mean, um, it's good for the if the workers gain skills and we're then hired after building these ghost cities better than them just sitting at home and never getting a job right and just slowly became and better better for the workers yeah why did why did these cities become ghost cities well the government just the government thought that you know the government thought that this would be a good thing and create economic growth and things and people would move there once they built it and then after they built it nobody wanted to live there um so they just miss miss uh had a miss guess of what the private sector the people actually wanted and in general you know the theory of free market economics is that you know the thing the way that's usually handled is through the market mechanisms where if people want something then there's a demand for it and then the entrepreneurs move in and try to meet that demand so you're not going to get these huge misallocations of resources Whereas the government can, you know, have a, a, a bureaucratic, uh, you know, panel that comes up with this idea that could be completely wrong. And then you get the situation that's, it's good for the workers who, who get the jobs for that small period of time, I suppose. But you're taking scarce resources that could have been used in a productive way. And you're misallocating them into an unproductive use of them. And now you can't use all those resources for something that people actually need and want. Which is, it's not, it's not just not creating production. It's actually taking some of those scarce resources and producing negative with them. Well, how, is, you know, how scarce are they? I mean, like if you're under capacity, you know, somebody got paid for those, for using them, right? For, for selling the resources that got used to build the city. Um, there's no return on it to the government, right? But, well, it's, uh, it's just reducing the available I mean, supply of those resources look, so that like people building houses where they actually want to live are now going to have to pay higher prices to get those same resources because there's less of them available. No, but the assumption here is that scarcity is a thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it depends on what you're talking about. Some things there's absolutely no scarcity with. But also I would wonder what like these cities like entire cities are built around disneyland everybody in the community works in goddamn disney world like there is something that draws people to these places and keeps them there and that's usually jobs some kind of search for a resource california was completely settled by people looking for gold like that's what they were there for to work to do a job that was needed in that area Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, throughout history, people have moved to these places. But 
if a city opens up where there's just nothing to be done, no resource from which to to build or output. Yeah, yeah this is the critique of of sort of like centrally planning economies is where yeah. it's it's impossible really t- for some bureaucratic institution to make these decisions in the right way in the most efficient way and that's why the free market you know, argument is more of the decentralized local knowledge position where it's kind of bottom up people want something they move there and then they build the city whereas the bureaucratic top down idea is we're going to build a city and then people will want to go there which doesn't always work and sometimes completely backfires. Well, something like this couldn't happen in the United States, right? Like, you know, development of land involves all kinds of stakeholders. You know, we talked about it a little bit last time when I was, you know, saying, um, you know, build homes, right? Like have the government build homes. And, um, you know, it's, it's a multi-step process. Like, like over in China, where you have the party, you know they have they can mainline these these types of decisions and make these types of errors and it, i think it is a strength of our system that you know that that type of top-down approach um you know isn't isn't um you know maybe is prevalent but on other issues it, it may be an impediment i you know but the point is though is like the job guarantee should be is going to be a small portion of a full employment scheme so what these people do again we prefer to use I prefer nonprofits to, to make op, run the system and, you know, non nonprofits, you could, you could put local stakeholders, you know, in charge, like, like local state governments, they could be the ones in charge, in charge of approving the nonprofits that employ these people, but, you know, it's federally funded and uh, there'd be a, you know, certainly a certification process for anybody that's trying to you know, seek funding to employ uh, job guarantee workers and yeah is there a difference between like there's obviously a difference but instead of non-profit corporations why not like uh worker co-ops like funding the rise of that privately owned businesses but owned by the collective of the workers rather than like the business interests the board members could be done right well like we need to keep this simple you know like we're not, you know we're not really trying to reinvent the wheel here like you know and um you know got to get this thing to pass um congress which you know you know current congress still seems you know schizophrenic in terms of you know active harm and and then um um, when election time comes, they're, they're all about, um, you know, helping the people, it seems. So, yeah, like, I, I, get, I get what you're saying. And I used to think the same way, like, um, you know, this is 10 years ago. I was, you know, like, we could create some sort of, you know, through the job guarantee, we could get all these hippies to, like, go work a commune or something, right? And produce hemp for the nation and they could live in some society. And, um, but, like... I don't know, like, we want to keep it simple. We want to keep it as small as possible. It's part and parcel of a full employment scheme. So, you know, get the federal government the right size, get the state and local governments the right size, create incentives for employers to just hire the long-term unemployed, the over 50 workers, the disabled, you know, put, 
put give the disabled priority for federal jobs and, and state and local jobs and and um and then just kind of work your way down like create incentives for like workers to move and uh for remote work and you know so that way you know you know the, the the economy can be like one market, right? Closer to one market. And, um, and then, and then you, you come, you know, you have the nonprofits hire the remaining unemployed at $15 an hour. So the Red Cross, you know, we, we, and then we could create new nonprofits and they could do some of the things that people are advocating that, that, you know, become part of this process. Right. But, um, you know, we, we don't, I don't, we don't want the government agencies running the, the job guarantee process. There's a potential for abuse um, down the road. Um, it, it creates a leverage point negotiations. It, it's harder for the conservatives to say no to nonprofits. Right. Um, and, um, you know, so I think it's the right way to go. And it, maybe it's more of a middle of the road approach, but like, you know, one of Chad's biggest complaints has, has always been, and he's already said it earlier in this conversation, is the inefficiency of the public sector. And man, I've only got one word for that ERCOT. Like, it, <laughs> there's inefficiencies on both sides. That's not unique to the public sector at all. Yeah. Yeah. And, I could see how somebody uh, more on the left would say that, you know, putting the you know job guarantee in the hands of nonprofits is sort of furthering that myth. And, and um, you know, so, so, you know, I fully expect someone to call me a neoliberal or whatever, or, you know, um, something towards that, but. But I guess the difference is that if there's an inefficiency in the, in the private sector, some company is inefficient, they're not, their funds aren't aren't coming from from taxation or inflation so they're not having a 300 billion dollars a year in subsidies not coming from taxation or inflation cool all right well that's i mean that's the that's the government giving money to corporations so you think that they just handed that shit out you don't think the corporation came there and said please mr government can you give me 303 billion dollars yeah, but my point is that the, the corporation itself doesn't have the ability to create $3 billion and give it to itself, whereas the government does. So the difference is if there's an inefficiency in the private sector, it's not going to create a systemic problem like inflation or anything like that. And it's not going to come from siphoning wealth from the population like taxation. It's just going to be an inefficient process and they're going to go out of business or whatever. Whereas the government, if it's if it's siphoning wealth out of its population to presumably do something more efficient with that wealth than the population would do otherwise, then it's it's got a a big problem if it doesn't actually do that because it's okay. si you would have to prove to me that they're siphoning wealth out of their population first. And I don't think you can show me a balance sheet that proves that. What do you mean? I mean taxation is like the definition of siphoning wealth from the population. You're going by the same old definition of taxation that isn't how it works. Taxes for spending and revenue is obsolete. 
Like, but I mean, if you're if you're you've got the wrong, me, it's not like, it's not it's not tabs, it's stab. <laughs> well, they're they're taking like six thousand dollars out of your out of your paycheck every year, right? So is That's it true. six six thousand dollars that you could be using, but they're using it in some other way that you don't really have an idea of what they're doing with it, but. That $6,000, in my point of view, is better allocated by you who actually needs it and worked for it rather than the government saying, trust us, we know how to use this money in a better way that's going to ultimately help society. And the way you're going to use it is not efficient and it's not going to work out. They're not using that money that I send to them. That's not how it works. Well, that's even worse. If they're just taking your $6,000 and not using it, that's even no, worse. It's a, con- it's a contractual obli- obligation. Well, it may be a contractual obligation, but I'm just saying, in my opinion, I, I understood. I understood before I accepted the job making fifteen thousand dollars a year that I would have to pay taxes on that fifteen thousand dollars a year. Yeah, that's fine. I, it was in the contract. I understood that. I agreed to. Yeah, you also implicitly agree just by staying inside the country. Yeah, you. In order to disagree with that contract, you actually have to leave this this entire continent or whatever this entire nation. You but, could just not make more than I think it's twelve thousand four hundred a year. As long yeah. as you're making less than that, you never have to pay income just, tax again. Or you can just live well under the poverty line for the rest of your life. That's another way of not signing that contract or whatever. But I'm saying that I think you're able to spend that money in a way that helps you better than the government can. You would be more efficient with the way you spend that six thousand dollars a year. That's not why the taxes are collected. You're they're not spending that money. Neither are you. And you wouldn't have had that money to begin with because there was a contractual obligation to pay that amount of money back. It was never yours to begin with. It was part of the contract of taking that job. Yeah, I understand all that. I think you're like, and you're not really getting the point I'm trying to make. But You're saying the private sector is more efficient. That, that, right? That's well, a hell- it, it may not and it may, it may not be more efficient but i'm just saying like if the government i mean we got on that point because he was saying can you prove that they're taking wealth out of the society well yeah i mean it's pretty straightforward if they're taking six thousand dollars from you and then not using it for anything then they're <laughs> siphoning wealth from society they know they take purpose. that money they take that money to keep inflation down which keeps the wealth in society yeah, otherwise inflation would happen and that would be the way that they siphon wealth out of society. So either way, they've got to take wealth out they're of society. They're damned if they do, damned if they don't. You've, <laughs> you found yeah. a way to make it to where they're wrong no matter what they do. Well, I mean... It's their fault. They could just do what everybody else does and provide a service that people want in exchange for money without having the ability to increase the supply of money to fund what they're doing. Again, the, the deficit is not set by the government. It's set by the, the market or the people and the decision to save. People that, going to request loans and taking out loans and getting uh, well, stuff like that. That's Yeah, it, and saving, savings attempts above the, these loans that you're talking about, that people are trying to save even more than, than, than these loan amounts that get, that get spent, right? So... So, you know, and and the government is is the only one that can provide this. It's the only one, right? Um, You know, if the government deficit is zero, all like, and and let's say, let's say the uh, foreign sector is zero to keep this simple, right? 
then you know all savings in the private sector at that point would be equal to all the private debts, right? And so, you know, but if you introduce a government deficit, now private savings can exceed private debts. We can be solvent as a whole and, and you know, the economy can function. Um, you know, uh, I think we, you know, kind of talked about the credit expansion last time, right? And, you know, that can carry you pretty far and, and, and the fraud will work on the up uh, but eventually you crash and um, right. The roaring twenties and then the great depression. Yeah. And, and, but, and let's, when you, you know, there's this notion of um, efficiency, like firms well, can be very efficient at being criminogenic, right? I mean, financial firms and, and, the, and the, the, you know, the, the, you know, um, purveyors of, you know, um, liars loans, in the uh, last run-up, right? They were very efficient at perpetuating their fraud, right? Um, this is horrible inefficiency for society. And, uh, you know, government could have stepped in at any point and looked at this and said, yeah, this is complete fraud. We need to stop this, but they didn't. And, you know, well, so- I think I, I can make my point, I think a little bit clearer by using the, the, the money, um, what did you call it? M Mosler's money- theory or whatever um so if you if you take the people in the in the meeting room and you know moser's at the front he's got he's got the ability to give out these business cards now if, if you have some other random person in this room who also has the ability to create business cards that look exactly the same and he starts you know using his ability to create business cards to get goods and services from people and he gives them money in exchange for it. Um, that's essentially, it's an analogy for counterfeiting in society. So a, a counterfeiter, the reason why it's illegal right now is it seems like there's a, there's a consensus that counterfeiting itself harms the economy because that guy can make himself absolutely filthy rich because he has the ability to create fake money. And you could argue that, well, he could also do something really good with that money. He could increase production and, and help society out if he used his ability to create money specifically to do things that need to be done. And then it would be a good thing if he had that ability to create money right beside Warren Mosler and then the money analogy. Um, now I think, you know, the, the risk is that guy can make himself filthy rich by counterfeiting and the cost that what, what he's actually doing is, is pulling wealth from everyone else's money and pulling it to himself through his ability to create fake money. And, you know, everybody else, there's going to be more and more money circulating throughout that little community of people using the cards. So they're, you know, the value of the money they're getting in exchange for doing their goods and services is going to be constantly going down. Whereas this guy is going to be able to accumulate all this stuff because he has the ability to create money to get people to do all these things for him. And that's a huge problem. So we need to stop people from counterfeiting money. You know, in the, in the Mosler example, the way that's done as an analogy for how our system works is if you are caught counterfeiting, the guy with the gun has to come try and take you out to, to 
prevent you from counterfeiting with something else like gold, but actually a better analogy is like Bitcoin. The counterfeiting is prevented because it's not possible to do it. <laughs> There's nobody that, that can create fake Bitcoins. Um, so it doesn't depend on this kind of uh, course of mechanism. But I think the, the point I really wanted to make there is that that, that guy that's counterfeiting and making himself rich and, and really siphoning wealth from everybody in the room, that's exactly what Mosler's doing. There's, there's no difference. The only way you can make it moral and good is to say, well, if he decided to use that ability to only spend money on things that will ultimately help society, then it's actually a good thing that he has that incredible power that nobody else has. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I don't think that's a good power to give anybody. And it is ultimately siphoning wealth from everybody else, putting it into the hands of the person who has that power, and then just trusting that that guy with the power does the right thing with it. Sometimes there are public needs that are too big to be met by the scarcity of a commodity. And that's what we found out in World War II. We would have never won World War II if we had restrained ourselves to only how much gold we could get the reserves for. I mean, I don't think that's true because I think the reason why we were so powerful and so wealthy to start World War II was because of all of those years leading up to it where we didn't have a fiat money, where we were able to build the middle class and build this huge production infrastructure and become the wealthiest nation on the planet. And then to fight the war, the government used its power to create money to siphon wealth from the whole society into its hands to create the war machine and fight the war. But I still think that this society itself only has the wealth that the government can, can put into its hands because of the actions of markets and creations of wealth that are occurring without the government trying to do central planning from the top down. I think the, there's so much risk when you're doing the central planning from the top down that the decisions that are being made to try to do the productive thing aren't actually going to be productive and might actually be negative. There's risk on both sides. That's what ERCOT's finding out right now. There's risk on both sides. The difference is, is the government has more resources to pull. Well, I mean, there's risk on both sides, but there's no central planners in the in the in the private sector it's kind of this decentralized consensus built on what the consumers are demanding and what they want and the entrepreneur's ability to give the people what they want by you know inventing things and innovations and things like that 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 ultimately builds that's the way the it wealth. happens both ways that's the way it happens both ways like i, I in our last conversation with adam you were talking about how the government just goes around stealing land from people, not mentioning that really what's happening is they're paying a pretty penny to obtain land that they want from people. But it's, it's different for the government because the government doesn't have a clear idea of what the consumers actually want. And I don't really think the government really cares what consumers actually want because the, the consumers, the people are not purchasing anything from the government. The government's just taking from the people and then giving them what it thinks people want rather than, you know, in the private sector, the no, only it, way what it's doing, what it's doing 
is literally giving the people these IOUs and saying, here, look, we'll give you this thing that you can trade in for a tax receipt later. If we can gain the access to these resources from you, the government's paying for everything it takes. Yeah, but it's saying like, if you want to get out of this room and you don't have the ticket that I'm offering you, you get shot. So yeah, it's, it's, so it used to work where, you know, you, a sailor wakes up with a bump of the head and, and he's on a boat and now he's in the British Navy. You know, um, you know, there's, there's something called war communism, right? Uh, the government can uh, just march around and take all, you know, resources that it wants. You know, with this system, if there is incentives, right? And, it, and, it, and, and the incentives you know, become, you know, more apparent once you're in that second order of transactions. And, um, you know, where, where after this first initial group gets, you know, payment from the government for doing. Right. You know, well, now, I, I, I guess, you know, the, the perspective that I'm looking at this whole thing from is like, it kind of going back to in the money analogy, um, before there's a guy at the door with the gun and before Moser's giving out these IOUs, those people still have, have the incentive to do work because of the pressure uh, of survival itself. And I, I think that pressure itself is enough to, to, to get people to work. And, you know, the process of exchanging things back and forth will create a pressure to use a, a medium of exchange of some sort. And the, the system will essentially be built on, you know, I need things, so I need to give you things in exchange. But the, the Mosler example seems to, it, it imposes something onto those people that wasn't already there. And then the MMT idea seems to be like, you know, and in my point of view, the Mosler situation is creating unemployment. It's creating an unemployment problem. Now everybody needs a job. Because not only the survival aspect, but because they have to pay the tax to get out of the room and everybody wants out of the room. And so they need that money. And that's how Moser's getting them to do things that they don't really want to do. But that itself creates an un unemployment problem. And my idea is, or what, I, what seems to be going on is the MMT is saying that the solution to the problem that Mosler caused is Mosler and nothing else. Whereas my my whole perspective comes from the imagining a decentralized money and what kind of economy would exist in that situation. And it seems to me that just the fact that we're all using money that has an inflation rate rather than a deflation rate is a huge reason why we all need jobs. I mean, it's essentially a tax just like the regular tax. It creates the need to to have a job in the first place because if you don't have a job your cost of living is constantly rising so you you got to keep working to stay treading water stay above water else you're going to get taken under whereas that's true i don't think anybody disagrees with that at all okay but that's that's nature but if you imagine I mean, the deflationary economy it works the exact opposite no, it doesn't. It doesn't work. It never has. There's not been one. Point to one. Yeah, um, yeah I, can, I can point to several, actually. 
Well, the, the anthropology, the, you know, you know, looking back thousands of years, you know, there's never been like, you know, an effective barter economy. I mean, I know there, I can barter right now. I know there's like websites you can barter on, you know, but, um, you know, it, it depends upon the coincidence of wants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that, and that maybe modern, modern technology can help us further barter a little bit so we can deal with non, you know, non-monetary means. Right. But well, if you look at like the prisoners in World War II, they, they started out bartering with the different goods and services that they had to exchange with one another. Yeah. And eventually but, that turned into the use of cigarettes as the medium of exchange to, to get rid of that, that problem of the, the coincidence, coincidence of no, I mean, what happened is why barter didn't take hold is because you can't win a war by bartering. Yeah, and it, it doesn't work like on a larger scale. There's that, very right? specific <laughs> things that you need to win a war. You can't be gambling on whether, well, this guy's going to take coffee for these bullets. You know, that I'm talking about the pr- prisoners. Work. Prisoners, like if you just take a an isolated community of just prisoners inside a prison that are interacting with each other and exchanging goods and services. I'm not saying it has anything to do with winning a war. I'm talking about people that have already become prisoners. They exchanged things directly for each other, just bartering to begin with. And then eventually that turned into the medium of exchange is cigarettes that they would use as money, essentially. And I think the anthropological evidence is is pretty straightforward that that type of situation happened all over the world where instead of cigarettes, they used things like tobacco or cows or cowrie shells or something like that. But, but not on a large scale and not international trade, not. Right. You know, because like, as soon as the, of, it doesn't the, work to provision of government, right? Like they would well, just like take the, it. It didn't work because like when the, when the pioneers came over and the native Americans were using uh, shells and beads and things as, as money, they had the ability to manufacture trillions and trillions and trillions of, of beads through their advanced manufacturing techniques and that destroyed the value of those those beads because there was so I much think, counterfeiting I think, I think you're focusing too much on the medium of exchange itself i think you're focusing too much on the money itself because what really makes a country rich is resource rich that's what it all comes back down to. Like if there are no resources, there's nothing to spend the money on. We need to start focusing on the building block, the very core of it, which is really the resources needed to do these things like a federal job guarantee and not the money needed to do it. MMT is about demystifying the money so that we can focus on the real. But the money aspect, like to me, this whole idea is is sort of, it seems kind of like a, a band-aid placed on a cancer, you know what I mean? Like the jobs guarantee and the MMT idea. Whereas like, to me, the whole problem is we are all put in this very bad situation where we need a job because our, the value of our money is constantly decreasing. So the cost of all the things we want to buy, like houses and, and food and things is constantly going up, whereas wages are stagnant. And also, you know, we can't accumulate a savings over time just by saving. We have to borrow money to make big purchases, which places us in debt. Then we have a, a monthly payment that we have to keep up with. And so we need a job constantly. Whereas I feel like if the solution 
like the fundamental solution to this whole problem is not to give everybody a job, but to create a, a money that actually doesn't devalue over time. It either stays perfectly stable, which if it, put, if it really stayed doesn't, perfectly stable, there would be deflation. Fact, doesn't change the fact that people are going to need to get that money, whatever it is, to survive. Like, yeah. so, yeah, this whole like, situation with the government is cre creating the need for a job, but I don't, like, you're pitching it as if the deflationary money will make that entire scenario go away. I'm still going to, like, even in a deflationary so money society, I'm still going to have to get that money to pay for the things that I need to survive. So Right, but it's going to be easier and easier every year to get the things you need to survive versus in an inflationary economy it's harder and harder every year to get the things you need to survive so, so a deal oh. like chad like you're free to propose like alternatives right i'm all ears i don't like the system that we have i you know but it's what we have right like the government taxes forces us to acquire its dollars you know some people work for the dollars and then they sell those dollars to other people, who, um, you know, because because all the sellers are going to have to collect a tax, right? You know, um, and, and you know, and then and then you add in the, the courts, you add in uh, the the credit system. So like, there's all these, you know, the tax the tax drives the acceptance of the money, but then there's these other like downshift uh, forces that pull us, you know, towards using the dollar, needing the dollar. Um, it's ongoing and it never stops. And, you know, but what I'm saying is like, you're free to propose like alternatives, but like given the system that we have, you know, and what MMT kind of shows us, right. Um, you know, at a, at a, at a basic level, you need a job guarantee to, to understand what is going on in your economy. Okay. Right now we don't, the unemployment rates, you know, it's relying on BLS, methodology and there's lags they make errors they correct them i mean they correct these un unemployment monthly unemployment reports like four times you know before they go in like the historical record and and the methodologies change over time and you know we had the fed chairman in february saying that actually the u3 unemployment rate if it was based on like february of 2020 employment levels you know it would be like 11 percent or something you know um we have, you know, BLS published six different unemployment rates, right? And we, we, um, you know, have criteria uh, to, to, for, you know, if you're actually in the workforce or not. And, you know, the household survey, they're calling home phones, you know? Um, so like, it's all screwed up how we collect data on our economy, right? Um, and, and so the, the job guarantee though, you know, you have a real-time indicator if the economy too hot or too cold. If it's too cold, the heads in the line are piling up to get a job to the job guarantee. If it's hot, you know that pool has, has gotten smaller, right? And, th and in real time, right? You know, the federal government's gonna be handling the payments. You know, they're gonna have a, the, the number of people working for a job guarantee in a week or pretty darn close to it. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe they got to wait on timesheets to be certain, but, um, you know, that, that's going to give policymakers a, a, 
you know, a, a far better tool in getting a handle on what the actual unemployment rate is. And, um, you know, and, and then there's all these other stuff too, right? I'm not, and I'm not saying what, what I'm talking about is most important, but at a base level, you don't know what's going on. You're flying blind without a job guarantee. And so, you know, yes, we can still say MMT is basically apolitical. Um, and, you know, it's a lens for viewing. It does have this policy advocacy part with respect to the job guarantee, which is integral because basically what we're saying is after everything that we've just taught you, you know, it's fairly obvious and, and, and stone cold obvious that, a, you know, a job guarantee would be superior to what we're doing now, which is an yeah. unemployment buffer stock well, of people decaying, right. you know, long-term unemployment, massive social pathologies that would just rampage through our society and, you know, in, in, in a situation where we're giving the rich billions, and, you know, and, you know, all the support for rich people. And that's another thing. It's like you know, inequality is created by government. And, 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 and it's not necessarily like the rich are just winning the race, right? They're given massive advantages. Once they get ahead, you know, they're given even more advantages. There's probably more intervention on the behalf of rich people, you know, by the government that, um, than on the behalf of poor people. So it is the case that the rich are the biggest welfare queens, you know, on the face of the planet in all of human history. Right, we, I mean- the, the, Has the, ever given so much to so few. So like, in terms of scale of like, what we're talking about here, like, you know, people, you know, you know the, the anti-government people, you know, they get all freaked out. But look, the, the unemployed are in the public sector already. Their wage is zero, they do nothing, right? It's a massive cost. It's a loss of output, all right? And if you can transition these unemployed people, you reduce the real size of government in both um, relative terms and in total terms, right? Because, you know, of all these second-order derivative effects of people getting a job, now they're, they're not needing welfare, they're not committing crimes, you know, um, society is better off, men mental health costs are less, like, you know, less people are dying of suicide. Healthcare. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people, so so like the. I mean, it, it should be just basic and obvious. It should not be so political, and people get so crazy about it. Um, yeah, but, yeah, I mean, so I need a job guarantee. Like, I agreed in a sense because, like, as an analogy, let's say somebody has some type of uh, a sickness, and let's say maybe it's a uh, like a with a withdrawal type sicknesses sickness that was caused by their use of heroin. I think that it is it is absolutely true that in the short term or the immediate term, this person would have a very strong argument that the way to get rid of this problem that they have at the moment is to take heroin. But I think the hard solution is somebody that tells this person like that the real solution to this problem, like you're just putting a temporary band-aid on the problem you're, you're by giving more. You're equating a job to taking heroin. Like no, you I'm, no the... I'm saying the use of an inflationary, <laughs> the use of an inflationary money, not so much the job, but just, just the, like the solution is, you know. The problem with deflationary money is scarcity. The exact same thing you try to use to explain away uh, a fiat currency is scarcity of resources. Well, 
Scarcity of the monetary theory and an overabundance of resources is just as damaging. Uh, Dustin, I've explained this to you many, many times. You bring up that point a lot, but I've always said that that is a problem that happens with with gold and silver, things that are physically scarce that can't be divided beyond their physical capacity. If you have a deflationary money that can be divided further, such as Bitcoin, you're never going to run into a scarcity problem. But Bitcoin isn't money. Bitcoin is an investment. Yeah, you can trade it, but there's enormous costs that make it very difficult. You cannot buy a cup of coffee with, with Bitcoin. Well, maybe, in the, maybe in the future you can, but again, it's... it's the well, there, was, there was a point in our history where gold actually went up against fiat currency and precious metals lost out to the modern metal. I think it was the name of the, the article or something like that. But like gold, just hands up, straight up, lost out. That's why everybody ran to turn in their gold, because it lost to the stability of the dollar. They, they ran to turn in their gold because there was a $10,000 fine and up to 10 years in prison if you didn't turn in your gold by FDR in 1933. And, and you, by using the, you know, you use the term deflationary or inflationary currency, and you may mean something specific to that, but like, you know, like I, Eurozone, they're using negative interest rates, F deflationary. You know, they, they had economies um, that were in a deflationary state, um, you know, severe deflationary states. And, um, what do you yeah. mean deflationary in relation to the U.S. dollar or deflationary? Well, they as far just have like... prices falling, right? Like you know, and you know, and and, and so yeah, they're, they're going to get a with, with, you're going to get withdrawal symptoms if you if you stop taking heroin. In the same way, in a monetary system, if you have been using inflationary money and then all of a sudden you go deflationary, you have all this debt built up that now is gonna be very difficult to be repaid. So you're gonna cause a lot of bankruptcies and banks foreclosures and things like that. Absolutely. <clears throat> and that applies to the transition from the dollar to Bitcoin or a deflationary currency. You're gonna have no, no, it a long period. No, it doesn't because it's those debts are not denominated in Bitcoin or whatever else you're gonna use. The problem would be if you had the U.S. dollar itself become deflationary all of a sudden. That would cause all that issue. If you're just transitioning to a different money that those debts are not denominated in, you don't have that problem as long as the U.S. dollar stays inflationary, which it will. All right. We, we, I still think we have the problem of deflationary currencies not great for producing things in time of a crisis. We would have never gotten through World War II it's not great. on the gold standard. It's not great for centralizing power into the hands of the government, for sure. And if that's what's required to win a war, then I would agree that deflationary currency is not great for winning a world war or something like that. But it also creates less incentive to be in wars like if we're somehow able to create a money that is used by the whole world and it's a deflationary money 
then no government would have the ability to siphon wealth into its hands besides direct taxation. And and, and no government in a panarchic system would ever win a war because it wouldn't be able to scrounge up the resources necessary. Well, I mean, you can still win a war. You would just have a decentralized fight rather than a centralized institution like the government controlling the, the war effort. Um, similar to how the, the pioneers won the war against Britain, it was a very decentralized effort where regular people were fighting against a centralized army and you had like bounties where pirate ships would be paid a certain amount of money if they can prove that they took down British ships and things like that. You have a decentralized effort against the enemy rather than a centralized one. And I don't think there's, it's necessary that you have to have a centralized war machine in order to win a war. And I think it's, it's good to create less incentive for war. It's good to give governments less power to, to centralize their population's wealth into their hands to start war efforts. The Byzantine general's failure is what you get when you decentralize war. No, I, I don't think that's the case. Yeah, their whole regime fell apart because they weren't able to communicate and move resources between one another on separate sides of the, the map because there was no central unification. No, I, I, I mean... That's what the blockchain supposedly uh, solves that problem, right? But no, I it mean, doesn't... If, if there's a... I mean, if you have a common enemy, if you're all saying we're fighting the British, then there's no Byzantine general's problem there. Everybody understands we're fighting the British. There's no like uh, knowledge issue at at that point. But um, uh, I mean, if you just look at economies in general, they're able to create all of this cooperation, coordination between these decentralized actors without a central authority directing the whole thing. And it's sort of a miracle how all of this happens. But the way it's explained is from the bottom up where you have people with local knowledge. I understand what the things I need are and the people around me, what they need are. And those low, it's kind of like a, which a is, neural network. Which is one of the, which is one of the fundamental structure, uh, pieces of structure of the federal jobs guarantee is that it's intended to be local, intended to be people who know what the needs of that community are. And okay. they're looking to fill jobs that, complete yeah. that public purpose that might be the case but it doesn't resolve the issues caused by a fundamentally inflationary money like for instance the 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 wage not the wage gap the the wealth gap uh, inequality a lot of that's caused by inflation because when you have people that own a lot of assets yeah. and those the value are of you the, telling are you telling me that the rothschilds didn't hold an obscenely large amount of the world's gold compared to everybody else there wasn't a wealth gap then well there's always a inequality inherent in anything that's distributed resource which is supposed to be an 80 20 rule and and it it always should stay there because it's like a universal law that distributed productive efforts are not equal and they're distributed among 80 20 distributions in our current system we have a 95 10 distribution which is completely abnormal it's never supposed to happen the only way to explain it is that the people that own a lot of assets and the prices of those assets are going up, like their stocks and their real estate and all their things they're buying, they're getting wealthier and wealthier and wealthier. Like That's the reason why Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are the richest people in the world because they own so many stocks in their own company. 
the value of those stocks are going up, they're becoming richer and richer. Whereas people like me and you don't own all those assets. So we're getting poorer and poorer in relation to those people. You that, could, problem, you, that problem wouldn't change if you were defining wealth by the amount of resources held or the amount of money held. That the, pro the problem wouldn't change. The problem when, would, you're, when you're changing to a deflationary currency, you're changing over to who has more resources rather than who has more money. The, the problem wouldn't change. In fact, wealth inequality would get worse because then people would be going to buy more of these resources up. No, those there would resources be, there would, would be, be going down stopping. in value. Those resources would be going down in price. In a deflationary economy, the prices are falling. So why would they be gathering up all these resources? The only incentive to gather up all the resources is when the prices are going up in an inflationary Because at the economy. end of the day, a real economy has to be run and real sources are needed to do that. People have to get food. We can't all get rich on the stock market and nobody produce anything. That's just, that's No, the stock ridiculous. market, the stock market price would be falling in a deflationary currency. It would not be an incentive for everybody to get into the stock market. You're thinking of an inflationary economy, the one we live in right now, right? Where the incentive so is to buy get into real stocks. resources. They would okay. buy up the real resources. No, Chad, the real resources what, what would be falling rate, as well. Chad, what is the interest rate in with a deflationary currency? What is the interest rate? I mean, uh, if you didn't have the Federal Reserve System and all that, it would just be whatever the market sets it to be. So it would be a function of the amount of savings available in the economy to lend. I mean, it wouldn't be set by a centralized authority at the top. It would be set by the market based on how much excess savings is out there that need, that people are trying to lend versus how much people want to borrow. And the government, and, and, and you want to govern, the government's going to enforce this by taxing because it does, it, it, it's dealing in a foreign currency. Right? Is that is that how is that how it works, or is the government issuing this deflationary currency? Well, if we're talking about Bitcoin, I guess you would call it a, a foreign currency. Yeah. So it, I don't think the government should be enforcing the the interest rates in any way. Um, it should be a function of how much savings is available. We've uh, that, seen we've seen deflationary economies though, right? Right, yeah. You know, we, like the the florin was the gold coin used in Italy. Yeah, and so you could look at uh, Italy during the the Renaissance period, where the florin was used. It was a pure gold coin. It went for like a hundred years without being devalued, and uh, resulted in the Renaissance. But um, you could also look at the period from 1870 to 1890 in the United States when uh, gold, gold was used as the currency and it wasn't devalued for a 20-year period. Um, I don't know what those interest rates were at those times, but I know that they would be set not by monetary policy by the government because they didn't have any control over the... Okay, so, I mean, it just, look, it, it, here's the thing. Today, the interest rate. Oh, is, oh, oh, you're talking about gold florins. They were minted by somebody. What do you mean they didn't have control over the money supply? Well, they, they couldn't create a whole bunch of new ones without having the gold to create them. So they didn't, they didn't have 
the ability to inflate the supply artificially, they could only inflate it as much as the amount of gold was available. So they, they can't amp up mining? Somebody could. Mining. Yeah, you can amp up mining, but you can't, you can't create $300 trillion worth of gold florins in, a, in an eight-month period or anything like that. Depends on how big of a vein you find. Yeah, but I mean, the, the supply was limited. It wasn't just an arbitrary decision by the people at the top. It was only limited by how many people you give pans and pickaxes to. It's also limited by how much gold is around in those, those streams and stuff, which nobody controls. It's just a matter of nature, how much is available. So you didn't give exclusive powers to increase the supply of money to a central authority. It was based on how much gold was available at the time. You could try and try to get more, but there's only so much available. And you'll, you'll notice that in both of those situations, you had a huge increase in wealth at the bottom level of society the the poor turned into the middle class and their wages the real wages were constantly going up because the the price of the things they want and need was constantly going down in terms of the money so what period are we talking about we're talking in the period of the florin and the period between 1870 and 1890 in the united states oh you mean right during the the industrial revolution right when technology was really taking off yeah i mean during it's, the- it's funny i hear y'all talk about these these calculations and figures and about the money itself but you'll never you'll never talk about what part of that might be an effect of technology getting better well the idea is that when you have a society in that situation i mean it's not a coincidence that both of those time periods were were revolutions the renaissance happened during that period was a huge boom boom in uh, innovations and technology creation art and the same thing happened in the united states during that period where they had the invention of the electricity and planes and cars and also also these were these were periods where the u.s government suspended the gold standard lincoln uh instituted the the greenback in in 1963 the the uh what is it this is after the civil war after the civil war they got rid of the greenback and then they went to just gold as money for a 20-year period produced the whole middle class the the real wages were going astronomical people were becoming extremely wealthy in the united states production was was during this was during a period of federal reserve of of of, uh um uh, fractional reserve fractional reserve banking that that you rail against yeah, the, the market has a mechan like I don't think fractional reserve banking should be legal. I think it is uh, it is legalized um, embezzlement. It should not be part of any economy. But the market has a way of dealing with that problem that fractional reserve banking causes, which is that the banks begin to compete against themselves. If one of the banks starts inflating the supply of money by having a lower and lower fraction of reserves, then the other banks start siphoning wealth from that bank and that bank eventually goes out of business. So they were continually trying to create a cabal or a uh, monopoly where they all agreed to uh, inflate the supply of money and have lower their reserves at the exact same rate. But that would always fall apart because one or two of those banks would always break off and not lower their fraction. It was always preferable to deal with inflation than it was deflation. No, inflation was no, harder what, to recover from. No, whenever one, you're working with a fractional reserve currency, 
whenever you don't have enough funds to pull yourself out of the hole, it's harder to recover than whenever you can say, okay, we're going to suspend this limit and pump funding into the system. I mean, it, there was not a problem for the worker. The workers were becoming extremely wealthy because their wages were the highest in the history of the because uh, technology, Because technology was allowing them to produce 10 times more in their work periods. Yeah, that I mean, that's a, a, an artifact of a deflationary system. And also the wages that they were earning were worth more in terms of goods and services every single year. So that's why you had situations like before the Federal Reserve came along where you could be a single person and you could support your entire family just working in one factory on your own. I mean, it was similar in the 1960s. Yeah, it's similar, in the, similar in the 1950s. The period that we're talking about in the United States is 1870 to 1890. Is that correct? Yeah. So we had the long depression. We had several banking panics. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah. That was during one of those, right after one of those surpluses that and we ran for a while. Worst, this is one of the worst economic periods like in our history. Like I, I'm reading about it now. just kind of like. It's not one of the worst. It's where the bill in 1874 called the inflation bill. And it was designed to confront the issue of falling prices by injecting fresh greenbacks into the money supply. Right. I mean, they wanted to create an inflationary system. It was the banking system that was having all the problems. The deflationary system is horrible for banking, especially fractional reserve banking. So every time the banking system would have some kind of crisis, they would say, we need an inflationary system to, to save the banking system. And now our entire economy is dependent upon the banking system. That's why we bail them out every time they fail now. But the problem is not the deflationary currency. The problem is that the banking system hates deflation because people don't need to borrow when you have a deflationary system. You can just save up your money and buy a house, save up your money and buy a car. You don't the have to take out mortgages. Fail. The banks will fail when the, in a deflationary system. You can't make Correct. Them. Yeah. You I mean... You can't make a loan because it's predicated on the asset increasing in value. Good, because you don't need a loan. You have the money. You can just save up and buy the things you need instead of being a he's, debt slave. He's, he's talking about even more people having, or even less people having houses. Me? Yeah. yeah. That's what yeah, you're the, talking about. The prices of houses Nobody falling. would be able to afford a house because it would be all cash price. No, no. mortgage. No mortgage interest. Yep. It would the just price, be all down payment and cash price, which would all, be astronomical. The housing, the prices of housing would be falling every single year. It'd be more and more affordable every year. Second of all, your wages would be increasing in real terms every single year. Third of all, you're not going to have these huge institutions that are investing in real estate as an investment that are gobbling up all of the real estate because it's falling every year. They're not going to be buying all the houses up. So you're going to have more supply and it's going to be more support, uh, affordable. So there's no way that it's going to be less people, less people than now. In our current situation, it's, it's, it's insane how many people can't afford housing. The prices of housing are absolutely stupid right now. And there's so much unemployment. I mean, there's so much homelessness out there. Yet all these people are buying up all the houses because it's a great investment for them. Deflation gets rid of all that. Yeah, you don't want a job guarantee where we build more houses and bring down the prices of houses. Well, I mean, that's putting a band-aid on cancer. That's, I mean, you're not getting rid of the problem that's, that's resulting in all of this. 
all of this. The reason people you are build more houses, the price of houses go down. More people can afford houses. Yeah, but you. Still How are have... you not solving the problem? You're not solving the problem because the cost of living is still going up for you every single year. But so are your wages. No, your wages aren't. Yeah, wages would naturally go up. They're not right now. Under a, a job guarantee, we're talking about the job guarantee. Well, here's the other thing: you can a job guarantee would provide a price anchor, and okay. it okay. would. Let me. I understand that, but here's the other thing: the the inflationary system causes a, and, and the way it's currently set up, it's causing a uh, inequality gap because all the people that own the assets are getting seeing their assets go up in value where all the people who don't have assets are just making it are seeing it become more and more unaffordable for them to afford those assets so you get this inequality gap spreading now you can technically resolve that issue if you had the government just give people straight money like a um, you know the stimulus checks or uh universal basic income or a job guarantee you're where you're paying the higher wages than the market is uh, doing at the moment you're giving people the money the new money that's being created and then you're going to see wealth siphoned from the people at the top to those people because they're the first people to receive the new money but you have a problem with that because when you're giving the people at the top the new money so that they can borrow and buy up more assets that causes inflation in the prices of those assets, which is good for them. The things they're buying is stocks and real estate, and you see the prices of those things go up and they're happy. But if you're giving money to the people at the bottom, the things they're spending their money on, they don't want the price to go up. But if you give them all this money and they start buying food and shelter and houses or whatever they need, clothing, and the value, uh, the price of those things start going up, that's not good for them. So you still create a problem, even if you try to resolve it through the current system. The federal job guarantee would help stimulate the production, the output of those things that you're talking about the prices going up on. Well, that's an assumption. You, th- you know, hopefully it's, it's not th- an assumption. If, if we build, if we if build they, fish hatcheries, the price of fish goes down. Like that, that's economics 101, right? You add supply price goes down. Well, you have to be able to turn a profit. You have to be able to put in less inputs and get more output than is the value of what you're putting in. If it's inefficient, the process that they're doing, then people it will actually... building more houses build more houses than they buy houses. Yeah, but what if they're wasting all the lumber because they're not using it efficiently? Or what if they're using materials that they shouldn't be using? Did the house get built? Yeah, but then, the, then what are you talking about? Then less houses are going to be built because they wasted all these materials and now we have less materials available. Those like, houses weren't it, being built to a, begin with. It's a very complicated, like, like they say, an, an economy is a hyper object. It's something that can't, you cannot comprehend because it is so complex that you can't comprehend it. And that's the problem with, with central planning is that any outside force pressure that you apply to a sufficiently complex system you're going to get unintended consequences where something happens you didn't expect. That's why it should be a self-contained local knowledge bottom-up system of of organization rather than a top-down central planning one. Because The federal jobs guarantee would be exactly that, a bottom-up, especially if they set it up as a non-profit or a worker co-op. It would be exactly what you're saying. 
if it's going to be not that, I mean, a I'm, top down. I mean, I di- highly doubt that that's going to get passed. But if let's say it did, and you're right that it does. Oh well, I, it, I don't disagree with you there. I mean, yeah. we've got two right wing parties. Right. Well, so, but, yeah, but I, I mean, think... like, even if that's the case, you're not solving the fundamental problem, which, in my view, is that you're creating a system in which we all have to keep swimming to keep our heads above water because the water's constantly rising on us where we're all in debt, we all don't have enough money. I think the, the so, fundamental solution to the problem is at the level of the money itself, the money system. We have to create a system where the water's lowering. Things are getting easier year after year. No, it no, becomes no. easier or, to no, buy no, all no. the things you need. It no, becomes easier to afford a house. Life rafts. Or we just give people life rafts. <laughs> yeah, I guess you can just give people life rafts or you just keep well, taking heroin. We set the floor. Eventually, we, we set the floor for these things. Eventually, those things, I mean... If you don't solve the fundamental underlying issue, the problem, it's not the all these solutions eventually stop working. It's not gonna. It doesn't continue to work. Okay, but that. So the example you gave, you know, I'm 1870, 1890 U.S. This is a terrible example. Okay, for, for, for banks, yeah. So, so like, so you know, and, and, and like we have Bitcoin, right? Like the real test you know if we if if it was superior and more efficient you know we would start converting over to it right many uh, people are yeah it's yeah, millions well, and millions well, of people you, every day you know but the thing is we still can't pay our taxes. what's what's the velocity of bitcoin right you now can't pay your taxes to usd what well i i don't know dustin what, what do you chad what are you saying you can't pay your federal taxes with bitcoin not federal no you can pay your state yeah, taxes yeah. in several different states florida yeah, and ohio and things like arizona that. i think okay yeah so so wyoming you know and and, and here's the thing i think you're kind of like i don't know um i i know i mentioned it last time but if, when a government is in a position of you know under this pressure to provision a public sector like you, i don't want that thing dependent on tax revenue like you don't want that government to have that kind of pressure to, to fill its coffers, you know? Um, well, because you want the government to have more leeway on what it can do, but I mean, it uses that leeway. No, that, I don't, I don't want it to overtax. To what? You, I don't want it to be like, you know, go crazy and, 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 you know, be, you know, even more Yeah, but like, okay. So Biden just money. bombed Syria. How many millions and millions of dollars did it cost to bomb Syria the other day? If Biden had to come and be like, hey, we would like to start bombing Syria again, but we're going to need to raise everyone's taxes a little bit to afford this, people would be like, no, we don't want Syria to be bombed again. Stop. Get people out of there. But instead, because they don't need to, to raise any taxes in order to get the funds, they can just print it out of thin air. They don't have to ask anybody. They can just do what they want and start bombing the hell out of places we, the people, do not want to be bombing. And it sounds like a political breakdown in like democracy, not of the money, well, not of the monetary system. Yeah, inflation like, is taxation with monetary they would still bomb Syria. <laughs> they, they, would, they would still bomb Syria. Well, de- democracy has more power over the government when the government is actually dependent upon taxation. When it's not dependent on taxation and it can just print whatever it needs, the government has no more accountability to the people. It can just do whatever it wants. Yeah, it could pretty much do that either way. So, I mean, no, no. If it had to, I, be I like, don't think they. I don't think they hold accountability to us either way. There would be a very strong answer to the question of how can you afford this? Be like, well, the only way we can afford anything is by raising taxes. 
Now, the, the answer is, oh, we can afford anything we want because we literally have unlimited money. So if you impose, you know, the, the, the idea that the government is the government is a user of the currency when it's an issuer, you, you are creating economic problems. And I realize, you know, your example is more of the government, you know, you know, becoming Greece and, and abdicating its currency and adopting another currency in this in Bitcoin, I, you know. And well, there's another problem that's inherent in this whole system, too, because like this is great for us Americans where the U.S. dollar, you know, the U.S. government has sovereignty over the world reserve currency. But what about the other 7 billion people on the planet who are not U.S. citizens? Well, a lot of them actually use our <laughs> currency and a lot more of them actually have their currency pegged to our currency. And a whole yeah. lot of them, if you ask them, most of them, if you ask them what's going on with the U.S. dollar, they'd be like, fuck, I don't know. I use francs or yen or like that is not even as big a concern as your group would make it seem well yeah. all of those other people don't have sovereignty over their currency if they're using the u.s dollar those governments go don't ask have somebody in australia what they think about what's happening with the u.s dollar they don't fucking know they don't fucking care it doesn't fucking matter because they're using australian dollars well it does matter because if they're using u.s dollars <laughs> the the u.s government can't tax can't directly tax australian citizens right but it gives the the u.s government the power to sanction any other country it wants that uses the u.s dollar by cutting them off from the u.s dollar system and it gives Thanks. the u.s government the power to impose to, inflation also hits those currents those countries so a lot of the inflation that we're not seeing in the u.s may be going to these other countries where the u.s dollar is inflating and we're not seeing it here but we're gaining a lot of value from the fact that the inflation is being exported to these other countries. So the system isn't sustainable on a global level because all these other current countries are subservient to the U.S. government who has control over its own sovereign currency, which is the world reserve currency. So not only do you have pressure from within the, within the U.S. from people like me who are like, hey, inflation is a hidden tax. This isn't good. You've also got pressure from the entire rest of the world who's like why is the u.s government in this privileged position where they can have so much control over the world economy because of resources no it's oh, yeah because they have our banking, over the currency. our banking system was way more advanced before the rest of the world were yeah but cur currently it's it look, has a lot to look do at, with look at the look at our top foreign policies look at our top exports our top exports are like food and machinery for production and like resources that are needed to fuel countries. Like whether like we don't export iPhones and iPads, we export shit that people need to keep their shit functioning. This is why they'll always need to deal with us. And I don't know, you may have some morals against that, but that's uh, like... I mean, that's the case. That's, that's one the of the biggest China. things. China doesn't have the world reserve currency. Why not? They export way more than we do. Yeah, they export... Way more, they way export, more dependent on them than they, they are They export cell phones and TVs 
they don't export heavy machinery and oil and they don't export the shit that countries literally need to make well, their me, economies let me, revolve let me ask and you mmt this. does mmt doesn't rely on like the us being the world reserve currency it again it's an analysis of all currencies and you know us is in a privileged position and you know but the thing is is we don't take advantage of it and the job guarantee would help us take advantage of the real terms of trade and you know you know that's one of the big changes you know from you know 1971 um you know through the 2000s was was the uh, uh presence and and increase in the uh the trade deficit you know before then you know, Bretton Woods um and pretty much you know I think as far as although you know past the 1900s we, we always ran tra trade surpluses um yeah once you're running this trade deficit, now you have foreigners that are saving your currency into in addition to your domestic sector. And so, you, you know, you, you, you gotta, you gotta allow the currency to be flexible and, and, you know, you, you're not, you're not trying to increase taxes because you see this happening and you want to, you don't want there to be a, a government deficit. You, you've got to allow this to happen. Um, because again, there's no reason to, make the deficit zero um in and of itself right like yeah if you think inflation's high like maybe you want to cut spending or maybe you want to cut tax or raise taxes um but the, the goal itself is not the budget position it's the inflation well i guess the the so, core but, the core uh problem i have with the mmt theory itself is that it kind of borrows from the keynesian idea of you know, you increase supply by increasing demand. And, you know, if you look at all of the hyperinflationary episodes that have ever happened, they were not able to increase the supply of goods and services simply by increasing the supply of money and, and increasing demand that, that way. So I'm wondering, like, down the line, if we do have a hype, an inflationary episode, I'm sure that MMT is going to be like, well, this isn't a problem with the money supply. This is a problem with with uh, the supply of goods and services and my answer well, at that point if you... wait, wait, my answer at that point is just going to be well can't you just increase production by printing more money wasn't that always the idea that you increase demand through the money supply and then that results in an increase in production but that it's doesn't it's seem to just, work in an inflationary episode it's not just printing money right like it's directing it to a productive activity you know, and, and so that's a big part of MMT. It's like, you know, they're not just, we're not just talking about, you know, willy nilly government spending, um, you know. Yeah, but there's many examples of so, governments using the, the power to create money to, you know, direct so it towards. every hyperinflation well, example in history, including, you know, Venezuela and, you know, Zimbabwe, there's, there's always some um, initial uh, catastrophic sort of supply situation germany loses like you know a bunch of industrial resources right and uh, or, and they have this ginormous uh foreign debt to pay so they've got to you know get these foreign um currencies to repay the out think about and, like the hyperinflation in russia that happened around the same time the yeah they had a fix well oh 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 around the same time in the 30s yeah i think it's the 20s actually 
like 1921 when it was the soviet union so like that's really hard to study like i've no I've, no it was before the soviet union it was like oh okay i don't know dur during the revolution they had a hyperinflationary episode that's when the revolution occurred and um it was after world war one um there was not any like shortage they they didn't lose control of any resources or anything they Did were they just tax? Did there was their tax system credible you know, were they, you know, it's like, was it a fixed exchange regime? I, you know, I don't know. Uh, but all I know is looking at like Venezuela, Zimbabwe, there's, you know, in Zimbabwe, they took all the productive farms away. Um, and, and yeah, they, they used the printing presses in a very willy nilly way. And, but, you but know, that came secondary. Like, yeah, secondary. Weimar, and, Weimar was straddled with huge debts denominated in francs that they yeah. had to pay back to the French. At the same time, they lost a whole lot of agricultural land okay. to the French. But this Also, is, in, in Venezuela, all of their productive capacity was geared towards producing oil, oil and selling oil. They, they relied heavily on this one resource that suddenly tanked. Right. All right? Like, they also had point. large sanctions and debts denominated in, in U.S. dollars. So they had no sovereignty. These countries had no monetary sovereignty. Right. But here's, here's what I'm saying. On top of massive production failures. Okay. So if you have a massive production failure, doesn't it seem like the solution to that problem is using sovereignty over the money supply to do job guarantees or something to increase production. And isn't that exactly what they did? Like if you're saying the increase in the money supply occurred after the problem with production, that seems like perfectly in line with MMT, which says that if you're having a problem with production, you can resolve that by increasing demand and, and doing job guarantees and things using the money supply. But that didn't seem to work. So my idea is, what happens if you have uh, inflation you, you, and a production problem and increasing the money supply to fund things isn't increasing production? What do we do? How do we get out of that? The federal jobs guarantee is directly geared towards creating production in sectors that need. So if, if Venezuela would have created a jobs guarantee, they could have avoided the hyperinflation. Well, they should have put more resources into a, a different segment of the economy. They put all of their resources into producing oil. Like they needed agriculture, they needed schools, they needed all kinds of stuff. So if, Ger if Germany would have done a federal jobs guarantee in a very specific way, it could have avoided the hyperinflation. Well, they, I mean... They it, they uh, needed uh, to get uh, their resources not. back online, but but really it, no, I don't think that there was any way to avoid what happened in Weimar because of the giant debts that were put on them, uh, uh, it, it denominated in in French francs. The, they had no sovereignty, and they and they printed marks to buy the francs, and you know each day they kept adjusting downward, right? So it took more, and um, you know, and, and w once all that stopped, though, the inflation stopped, you know, they were they were increasing the prices that they were paying. Well, no, and it stopped the moment that they went back to the gold standard. The same thing happened to Russia. Both G Germany and Russia stopped their hyperinflationary episode by backing their money with gold again. By 
going back to the gold standard, it immediately stopped the hyperinflation. Well, what immediately stopped the hyperinflation is that there was nothing for people to buy. So people couldn't spend. So, I mean, the, the hyperinflation would have ended on its own anyways. There were no products. There was I mean, no... In both of those situations, they were very resistant to going back to the gold standard. And they tried everything they could possibly do to stop the hyperinflation. And eventually, they very reluctantly went back to backing the money by gold. And that is the only thing that resulted in the stop of the hyperinflation. Hey, uh, I got to stop, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Right, uh, well, I think this is a good place to leave it. Thanks for joining us, Charles. Hey, thank you, Dustin. Yeah, I really Charles. appreciate it. Thank you, Chad. Yeah. You guys take care. Always and, great, uh, man. I'll, I'll listen and uh, see if I can follow up with any comments, all right? All right, man. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to another episode of the In the Driveway podcast. Peace. Until next time. If you've gotten something of significant value from what you just heard, please consider supporting the show by visiting our Patreon page or copying some sweet merch at our website, inthedrivewaypodcast.com. Thank you for listening. And remember, love really is the answer.